Good morning. Everybody doing okay? You guys good? <laughs> so if you're here last week, uh, it, was, it was a pretty heavy sermon. We have been in John, the Gospel of John, which is the fourth book of the New Testament, written in the first century by, by one of the 12 disciples, John. And um, at the end of chapter three, uh, we kind of come to a very, very heavy verse that says, the one who believes in the Son has eternal life, but the one who rejects the Son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on them. That's a big deal. It's a pretty heavy lesson last week. So because last week was so serious and that was so heavy, I, I, I feel like um, I owe you this. Um, so a string walked into a bar. <laughs> string, walks, <laughs> string walks up to the bartender and says, um, Sir, I want a glass of milk, because that's what strings drink in bars. And uh, bartender goes, well, I'm sorry, we don't serve strings in this bar. So he was really hurt by that, goes outside, looks across the street, sees a clothing store, goes in, goes in, buys a top hat, monocle, little, little bow tie, goes back into the bar, and the string goes, uh, hello, chap. That's my best British accent. Hello, chap. Uh, I would like a glass of milk. Bartender starts pouring the milk, Goes to give it to him, he goes, wait a second, hold on. You're that string that just came in here. I told you we don't serve strings at this bar. And so the string is like really frustrated at that point, goes outside, he's pretty angry. So starts like scraping up his body as hard as he can up against the brick wall and he's messing up his hair and starts twisting himself all over the place and storms back into the bar, goes up to the bartender and he goes, give me a glass of milk. The bartender goes, wait a second, I keep telling you this and over and over again. You're the same string that won't leave me alone. You're that same string, aren't you? And he goes, no, 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 I'm afraid not. <laughs> Those of you that didn't laugh about halfway through the sermon, you're it's just gonna blow your mind. <laughs> afraid not, brilliant, right? <laughs> it's the best I got, guys, so anyways. Today we're gonna to talk about something. It's, it's not gonna be super, it, not as heavy as last week, but, but, but very, very important. And we're doing one of my favorite stories in the entire Bible because I think you see the nature of God more in the story of the woman at the well than, than maybe any other story in, in, in the entire Bible. An absolutely beautiful story, an absolutely beautiful depiction of grace and forgiveness and um, a fantastic story. That's what we're gonna to do today. And here's where we're gonna land. We're gonna land on this question and it's gonna hit us on two different levels, okay? We're gonna ask the question, are we willing to be uncomfortable? And the first level that's gonna hit us on is a very personal level, which is this. Are we willing to be vulnerable and exposed, if you will, to, to God and to others? Are we willing to confess that we have sinned? Are we willing, are we willing to step into the light so God can, can kind of bring the darkness in us into light so it can be dealt with? That's an uncomfortable spot to be in, if you just wanna be honest. Are we willing to do that? That's the first thing. The second question, or the same question, second kind of, of, of slant on that question is this. Are we willing to build relationships with people who are dramatically different than us? Because that's uncomfortable. We have a tendency, we wanna be around people that are like us, because that's easy. It's difficult to be around people that are, that are very different from us and it's uncomfortable at times. Are we willing to do that for the sake of leading other people to Jesus Christ? Are we willing to get uncomfortable? That's what we're gonna talk about today. So you should've got a notes handout when you walked in. Everything will be in there. Everything will be on the screens behind me. 
If you have a smartphone, the Experience Community app, just click on Sermon Notes, you got everything right there. Fourth chapter, uh, I'm sorry, fourth book, and fourth chapter of the New Testament, the Gospel of John. We're gonna do about 70% of it or so, then we'll finish up the rest um, next week. This is a fabulous story. If you've never heard this story, fabulous, fantastic, okay? So I'm gonna pray. We'll get into the story of the Samaritan woman at the well and um, hope leave here encouraged, but also a little challenged too, okay? Let me pray. Father God, we love you. Lord, I love this church so much. God, I thank you so much that we have the opportunity to come in here to, to, to study the word, to worship freely. I pray, God, that in that, I pray that you bless this church. Bless us, God. And we don't just pray for us, though, Father. We pray for, for every church in this community if they are teaching the truth. We pray for our other campuses and all the churches in those counties and areas. We pray for the wonderful nonprofits that we get to partner with. Pray that we're a blessing to them. And ultimately, God, our main prayer is that you be lifted up in our lives, that we get closer to you, that you are honored and glorified, Father, Lord. So keep your hand on us today. And um, we thank you for this time, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Good story, guys. All right, let's get into it. When Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard he was making and baptizing more disciples than John, though Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and he went again to Galilee. He had to travel through Samaria, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the property that Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, worn out from his journey, sat down at the well. It was about noon. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Give me a drink, Jesus said to her, because his disciples had gone into town to buy food. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman, she asked him. For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God and who is saying to you, give me a drink, you would ask him and he would give you living water. Sir, said the woman, you don't even have a bucket and the well is deep. So where do you get this living water? You aren't greater than our father Jacob, are you? He gave us this well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said, everyone who drinks from this water will get thirsty again. But whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never get thirsty again. In fact, the water I will give him will become a well of water springing up in him for eternal life. So the, the first thing is this. If you have not been here, the Pharisees are kind of the bad guys. Okay? Not all of them, but the majority of them. Jesus's popularity is growing. And so it's grown, it's grown past the, the, the point of John the Baptist's popularity. And John the Baptist was a very popular guy. So the Pharisees were taking note. They decided to go, you know, go get him, go arrest him, go do something to accuse him. So as to not detract from Jesus's ministry, he said, let's go somewhere else. It's not that he was afraid of them. It's just that he, he knew that the ministry would get, get distracted or get detracted. So let's go someplace else. So he, he went to another area. So here's the thing about Jesus. And if you don't understand this, join the club of everyone who's believed in Jesus for the last 2000 years. Jesus was both fully God, he was 100% God, he was also 100% a human for the 33 years that he was on earth. And so when it says things like Jesus learned the Pharisees were coming, that can be a little confusing. Now I personally believe that Jesus saw and knew all because of his divinity, 
but we have a lot of questions that Jesus asks, which we come to find out he knows the answer to all of them, but it kind of brings up this thing. Did, did he learn things as he went, the human side? I don't, know, I don't know the answer to that, but it's kind of one of those interesting things to think about. And so another interesting thing to think about is why didn't Jesus baptize people? His disciples did all the baptizing, according to this disciple, John. He didn't do the baptizing, why? Maybe the reason why Jesus didn't do the baptizing is he knew, because we're humans, that we would put more emphasis on the person baptizing and the, and the, and the act of baptism more than the spiritual transformation that baptism is supposed to symbolize. So baptism is important. We, we, we should have baptism as a part of our walk in our relationship with God. But I think what Jesus was trying to teach everyone, including his disciples, is there's nothing magical about the water. There's nothing even magical about the person that dunks you in the water. It is the obedience to God that is the transformative thing when it comes to baptism. It's not the, it's not the water. It's not the person doing it. It is the obedience to God. God honors that. And then we see change because of that obedience. And maybe Jesus wanted to remove himself a little bit from the actual practice of it to let them know it wasn't who, who was dunking you, it is that you're being obedient to God. And then the third question we have to ask is, if they're leaving this area of Judea and going to an area called Galilee, why did they not go the quickest route? Just makes sense, we go the quickest route to get somewhere. Not only did they not go the quickest route, which would have been northwest through an area called Jericho, they, they detoured a longer direction to go through an area where there was a lot of animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans. Why would they do that? So notice John says this, they had to go that way. They had to go that way, why? Well, one is Jesus obviously knew that he was gonna run into a woman at a well and that there was going to be a lesson for her, a lesson for the whole town, and, and 2,000 years later, a lesson for us. So he knew that, that's why they had to go that way. The other reason he had to go that way, there was a lot of animosity between the Samaritans and the Jews, and they worshiped the same God. What do we learn from that? We learn that it is not Jesus' will for there to be animosities between brothers and sisters of the same faith. And it had to be dealt with, it had to be addressed, so he was gonna go address it. And he was, gonna, he was gonna go do something to break down that wall, if you will. So again, Jesus was fully God, fully man. And the man side of Jesus got tired, got frustrated. So they've been traveling. I'm sure Jesus is teaching his disciples the whole time they're walking. I'm sure he encounters people on the way from point A to point B. He's tired, he's worn out. So he came to Jacob's well, and if you don't know what that is, Genesis chapter 33, you can go back and study the history of Jacob's well. He ends up at Jacob's well, it's about noon, it's hot, he's tired, he sits down to rest, his disciples go to get some food, and during the hottest part of the day, when no one would want to go out and get water, a Samaritan woman approaches the well, more than likely because she didn't wanna talk to anybody, <laughs> And there you have Jesus sitting there. And not only does she not wanna to talk to anybody, this Jewish man engages her in conversation. Now this would have been extremely taboo. You would not have done this. This would have been extremely inappropriate, culturally speaking. And, and for us nowadays, that, that seems really weird. 
And you know, I go to coffee shops every once in a while and I'll go there sometimes if I just wanna read a book and get out of my office because I have no windows in my office. It can be quite depressing in my office if you've ever been back there. So sometimes I wanna go out and, and just be, you know, where there's like people and, and, and sun. And so I'll sit at a coffee shop and I'll read the Bible or read some other book that I'm, that I'm studying and people walk by and a lot of times women who come to the church, hey, Pastor Corey, hey, how you doing? Hey, how you doing? How's your family? How's your kids? We just talk for a second, not a big deal and they leave. We don't think about it. In Jesus's culture at this time, you would not have done that. It was very inappropriate for a man to just stop a woman on the street and just kind of talk casually in front of everyone. That would have been controversial. Not only that, this woman was a social outcast. And I'm gonna kind of apologize for some words I'm gonna say, but this is why we have Echo and Eon if you don't want your kids hearing these kinds of words, is we would have called this woman a whore, a, a, a slut. This was a very promiscuous woman. And so not only was she the wrong gender, she was the wrong sexual lifestyle, and then she was the wrong race. She was a Samaritan. This is a group of people that the Jews have despised for like 800 years by the time Jesus ends up at this well. Wrong gender, wrong race, wrong sexual lifestyle. The Jews despised these people so bad they wouldn't even touch things that were once upon a time owned by these people. That's how much animosity there was between these two groups. And then we have our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, engaging in a conversation with this person. Why do we care? Why does it matter so much that this woman was the wrong gender, the wrong, the wrong lifestyle, the wrong race? Why does it matter? Because it matters because it breaks down so many misconceptions of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ engaged in a conversation with the quote unquote worst of the worst in that society and he did it with love and he did it with truth. And it breaks down things like the fact that it is, it is impossible, Christians cannot be racist. Well, I've met racist Christians. No, you haven't. You have never met a racist Christian. How do you say that? Because one can't follow God and be a racist. You have never met a, a, a sexist Christian. How do you say that? I've met, I left a church one time because of a sexist Christian. You've never met a sexist Christian. One cannot be a follower of Christ and despise the opposite gender. You cannot do that, that's impossible. Because true followers of Jesus love everybody as we see in this conversation with this woman even the most egregious of sinners, even the worst of the worst. And we are to share the truth and love these people without compromising our biblical integrity. This is the tension that we are all called to live in. Someone wrote a book on this in 2020. It was me, it's right out here in the foyer. <laughs> that the tension is this. <laughs> that was a shameless plug, wasn't it? that we are to love people without compromising our biblical integrity. This is the great tension that all Christians are to live in. And I think I wrote about the story of the woman at the well because we see that tension in this conversation. Love people without compromising the truth. And so this woman at the well, we're gonna see this several times, she could not get past the natural. She could not get past the material. So the, women, the, the woman at the well couldn't get past what she had done physically. She, she had committed adultery, she was promiscuous, and she couldn't get over the natural consequences of that. But Jesus wasn't offering her a temporary fix or a natural fix. 
Jesus was offering her an eternal fix, a spiritual fix. So she's talking about water, literal water that you would pour in a cup, right? Get from a well. He was not talking about water at all. The living water he is referring to is the spirit of God that is given to those who accept and have a relationship with Christ and it sustains us until Jesus comes back for us, literally. So we have the spirit of God until God comes back. And this is the water, this living water, this is what we need. So Jesus' initial question, he actually didn't ask a question, he made a statement, she asked a question. It opens up a whole can of worms. Him saying, hey, get me a glass of water, get me a cup of water. And then her saying, well, how, why are you talking to me? This opened up a, a, a can of worms about personal hurt, about generational racism and hatred. It opened up a can of worms about addressing sin and how to be fulfilled and how to be saved. And look at this, what the woman came for, this is so important. What the woman came for was something physical that she could get with her own abilities and she thought that that would fix her. Jesus said, I come to offer you something not physical but supernatural and you can't get it with your abilities, only I can get it for you. Did you hear that? Everlasting life doesn't come from something that you and I can do. It has to be something that Jesus, the Son of God, has already done. That's the only way we can obtain it, is it must be about his water, not our water. Because here's the thing about our water. Our water does not work, it has never worked, it will never work. When we depend just on the material to sustain us, we die. We die. I don't know if you guys know this, you're all gonna die. You can be a vegetarian, you can work out three hours a day, you can, you can put all the right supplements in your body, you can do everything you want, eventually you're still going to die. And when we live by just the natural, when we live sinful, and we just feed what we want, our lusts of our flesh and things like that, we're always going to spiritually die. Sin, sin always spiritually kills us, but sometimes it physically kills us too. If you're promiscuous enough, eventually you're going to contract something that could take your life. If you are hateful enough, eventually someone might shoot you or hurt you or do something to you. Sometimes it ends even in physical death. But simply put, the point is this, our lusts, our desires, our sex, our pleasure, our materialism, our titles, our accolades, our money, our power, our affirmation, the amount of thumbs we get or hearts we get or thumbs with hearts or things hugging hearts, the, the, the amount, no amount of those things that we get fulfill us. It is never enough. That's why we get addicted to it because it never sustains us and we never get the contentment that we desire. And this has been a principle that has been around as long as humanity has been around. The prophet Jeremiah, God is speaking through the prophet Jeremiah about 800 years before the story at the woman in the well took place. And look what, it, look what God says through Jeremiah. For my people have committed two evils. They have abandoned me, the fountain of living water, and they have dug for them, the, themselves cracked cisterns that cannot hold water. What does that mean? It has nothing to do with water. God is saying through Jeremiah, my people have done two stupid evil things. They have forgotten my way and they have created their own way, but their way is broken and it holds nothing. That's what God is saying. They have forgotten my way, they have created their own way and their way is broken. And we're seeing this played out 
with the woman at the well, okay? Little sarcasm right here. Sir, the woman said to him, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and have to come here to draw more water. Go call your husband, he told her, and come back. I don't have a husband, she answered. You have correctly said I don't have a husband, Jesus said, for you've had five husbands, and the man that you have now is not your husband. What you've said is true. Sir, the woman replied, I see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews say that the place to worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus told her, believe me, an hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know because salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. And Jesus told her, I, the one that am speaking to you, am he. It's good stuff. So this woman is, is similar to Nicodemus. If you weren't here when we talked about Nicodemus, who was a Pharisee, who was genuinely curious about Jesus, there's a lot of similarities. They both had a false sense of spiritual security. They were both materialistic. When I say materialistic, I'm not saying like they both felt like they had to wear like Lululemon clothes or something like that. That's not what I'm referring to. Materialistic means that they could, anyone else have any teenage daughters? Yep, yep, you know exactly what I'm talking about. They were materialistic in the fact that they couldn't get past the natural. They were spiritually empty, they were spiritually lost. Unlike Nicodemus, this woman is quite sarcastic. Jesus says, if you knew who you were talking to, you'd ask for living water. And she goes, oh, well, get me some of that living water so I never have to come out here again and get more water. And then Jesus met that sarcasm with a very sobering statement. He basically says, I'll give it to you. Just go get your husband. And he knew exactly what was going on in her life. Now, at this point, all the metaphors, all the analogies, stop. From here on out, it is straightforward, real talk. Now listen, there's a lot of metaphors in the Bible. There's a lot of parables in the Bible. There's a lot of analogies and hyperbole in the Bible. But when it comes to what is right and wrong, the Bible is crystal clear. It is straightforward. This is wrong and this is right. There's no ambiguity when it comes to God's expectations. Now here's the thing. When we are confronted with the truth that we have lived in sin, or maybe we are living in sin, we must then come to a fork in the road. Do I own it and say, you're correct. I'm doing something that I shouldn't be doing. Or do we make up excuses? Well, I love her. Well, you don't know my upbringing. Well, you know, like I can't get to a good church. But, and we make up all these, what will we do in that moment? Here's what's so important. Because the woman owned it, you're correct. I've been with a lot of guys and the one I'm with now is not my husband. You're correct. Because she was honest about her sin, listen, that was the green light for Jesus to keep going with the conversation. At that point, if she would have been like, oh, I don't know what you're talking about. At that point, I don't know what Jesus would have done. I don't wanna speak for him. But he couldn't have gone any further if she wasn't honest. But because she was, 
Okay, we can keep going with this. So when we think about sin, because we're humans and we like to think that everyone is worse than us, when we think about sin, we like to categorize it in really, really bad sin, which I don't commit any really, really bad sin. You guys do, but I don't, right? That's how we think. Uh, you know, I mess up, but do you know what they do? This woman would have been kind of the top of the worst sinners. Back in this day, we think of things like same-sex relationships or transgenderism in the Christian world, like that's the pinnacle of all sin. In this time, adultery would have been the pinnacle of all sin. We've kind of reversed on these things, haven't we? And so anyways, this would have been kind of the top tier of all things. But God sees sin a little bit differently than we do. God sees sin, all sin, as something that puts a wedge between him and us. So it doesn't matter if it's lying or adultery or something else. Now listen, there are different ramifications for sin in this life, but in eternal, in, in, in eternity, all sin will separate us if it's unrepentant and we live in that lifestyle from God, okay? But in this life, things like sexual sin, there are greater ramifications for sexual sin according to the Bible in this life. It says that when we do sexual sin, we commit a sin against our own bodies, which means there may be long-lasting effects even after we're forgiven that we're gonna have to deal with in this life. But all sin separates us from God. And here's the beautiful thing though, all sin can also be forgiven by God. And some say, well, what about the unforgivable sin? The unforgivable sin is becoming so arrogant that we no longer ask for the forgiveness of sin. God will forgive us for any atrocity we have done. But we must be willing to get out of our comfort zones and be exposed and, and let God deal with that. Also, we must get out of our comfort zones and be willing to minister to the quote unquote worst people of society, regardless of what your other Christian brothers and sisters think about it. There have been times I have met with people here or at coffee shops or, or wherever who are, by some people's standards, the worst of the worst. And people go, well, I can't believe that you would let them in the door. Anyone is welcome through these doors. Anyone is welcome through these doors. That doesn't mean we condone what they do. But if you're looking to only hang out with people who think and look and act just like you, this is not the church for you. And so these doors are open for anyone who is hungry, for anyone who is looking for answers, you're welcome to come. And we need to be really careful when we talk about those people who commit the really, really bad sins. Because in 1 Corinthians chapter six, it makes a list of all these people that if they keep living in these lifestyles, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. And we're real quick to go, that's right, look at those people. But you know what the next verse is, verse 10? And such were some of you. We used to be that person as well. So we have to love people enough to get out of our comfort zones to, to go and engage people who are very, very different from us. Now look what this woman does, because she's human. Because she's probably a little embarrassed, she kind of diverts the conversation. She goes, oh, well, I, I see you're a prophet. And, and by the way, the reason I don't worship the way I should is, is, is you Jews say I have to travel all the way to Jerusalem, that I can't even properly worship in my home, that I gotta travel all the way to Jerusalem. So she tries to change the subject. She tries to kind of blame that she doesn't have a good relationship with God on, well, it's because, you know, like I got hurt one time in church or I can't go to the proper church. And here's the problem though, when our sins become known, when we are face to face with Jesus, we are without excuse. We have to own up to it. And so in this moment, she tries to shift the conversation. Jesus isn't gonna let her do that. And what he says is this, 
There has come a day to where it doesn't matter if you worship over there. It doesn't matter if you worship over there. What matters is, is that you worship in spirit and truth. What this means is this. Jesus does not care of the method by which we worship. What do you mean by that, Corey? What I mean is 50 years ago, LED screens did not exist. 50 years ago, PowerPoint didn't exist. Big PA systems and things, I had PA systems, but to the level that we do things in here, they didn't exist. This is a different method than what your grandparents experienced if they went to church. Now the method, not only is it, is it only allowed to change, it's always going to change. The method is always going to be different. What cannot change is the theology by which the method presents. Do you understand me? That means that if your friends go to St. Patrick's Anglican Church, Father Finley is a very good friend of mine, we're actually having lunch this week, that church looks dramatically different than this church. Uh, Father Finley wears uh, all, the, all the stuff that the Anglican priests wear, they go through their liturgy, it looks dramatically different. You know why he and I get along so well though? Because we understand the method by which we present the gospel does not matter. What matters is that we present the gospel that the theology doesn't change. So whenever people say, well, I worship God however I want, that's fine as long as you worship God with spirit and truth, with your heart, with your emotions, with your feelings, but we must also balance that with the word of God, with our mind, with our intellect. The style, the method, that can change. The theology can never change. Everyone's good with that, right? Correct? Okay, all right. And then because we just have to say it because you couldn't write a movie script any better than this. This woman is sitting there talking and she shows signs that she is expecting the savior, that she does want something to change. She looks at Jesus and she goes, one day the savior is going to come and he's gonna explain everything. He's gonna fix me. He's gonna fix these, these squabbles between our people. He's gonna make everything right. And then imagine sitting there <laughs> and the creator of the universe goes, it's me. And she realizes in that moment, she is looking into the eyes of God. It doesn't blow anyone else's mind except for mine. Pretty neat stuff. Next part. Just then his disciples arrived. They missed the whole thing. And they were amazed that he was talking with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you want? Or, or why are you talking with her? Then the woman left her water jar, went into town and told the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They left the town and made their way to him. In the meantime, the disciples kept urging Jesus, Rabbi, eat something. But he said, I have food to eat that you don't know about. The disciples said to one another, could someone have brought him something to eat? My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work, Jesus told them. Don't you say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Listen to what I'm telling you. Open your eyes and look at the fields because they are ready for harvest. The reaper is already receiving pay and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper can rejoice together. For in this case, the saying is true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap what you did not labor for. Others have labored and you have benefited from their labor. 
So I love this. The disciples get back. They see Jesus talking to a woman, which was extremely unorthodox, right? Very controversial, a little scandalous, but they dare not ask why. There's a couple of reasons. One, they respect him. They trust him. They love him. Here's a good one. He was the teacher. They were the students. The student doesn't ask the teacher why they do things the way they do it. Good lesson right there, right? How oftentimes do we say, God, why are you doing it the way you're doing it? Well, because I'm the, I'm, I'm, he's God. And we are just to mimic and follow his direction. So obviously something had changed in this woman. She drops her water jars, which is pretty important, water. And she runs into town to tell everyone, hey, I just met this guy that told me everything I've ever done. Could this be the Messiah? And what we have here, and what I think is really, really fascinating, that it was a woman who was promiscuous and of the wrong race. I say that facetiously. I hope you guys gather that. This woman is the first real convert that we see. When I say convert, the first example of someone being born again through the gospel. We see it right here. Now we get a beginning of that with Nicodemus a little bit earlier in John, but here we see the full transformation of this woman being saved. And the 12 didn't witness any of that. So they're still thinking in the natural. And, and they're worried about their rabbi who hasn't eaten anything yet. And they're like, you know, they just see a woman running off wah, into town. And they're like, okay, well, see, he still hasn't eaten anything. And they say, hey, you need to eat something, teacher. And then he responds, I have food to eat that you don't know anything about. And again, because they're still spiritually immature, and the disciples cannot get, they can't get past the natural, the material. Because Jesus was not talking about food at all. Well, he was, but not literal food, not natural food. His point was this, the primary food that we need to really live is not physical, it is spiritual. Basically, if someone were to present to you two options, in this hand, I have a literal loaf of bread. This will keep you alive for another day. And over here, I have spiritual bread, the bread of life, the knowledge of God and a relationship with God. I have this spiritual bread and you'll still physically die tomorrow, but you will live forever spiritually. Any wise person would take eternal life over just a little bit more time on this earth. And so here's the thing. The point is, is that if we need anything, we need spiritual food. And it, even how the church functions, a big narrative right now in American Christianity is, man, the church's number one job is to take care of the poor. That is not the church's number one job. It is a byproduct. The Bible even says, first and foremost, Jesus came to save sinners. Our, our, our primary function as a church is not to be social justice warriors, but to be advocates of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, hold on. If you're new here, there is no church that I have ever heard of in the United States that does more for social causes. We do a ton, but that is secondary to our primary goal of making sure people have the bread of life. And once we have met that obligation, then we will feed you. Then we will clothe you. Clothe you. Then we will walk with you and do as much as we can for the community. But our primary objective is making sure people live for eternity, not just live for a little bit longer on planet Earth. Okay? Everyone's good. You guys are so quiet this morning. Everyone's still awake? Still thinking about that opening joke. We'll get there. We'll get there. So because they were already talking about food, Jesus kind of stayed on the food analogy. Now imagine this. This woman runs into town 
all these people in the distance were coming. All these people from the town were coming to meet this guy that changed this woman's life. And as Jesus is standing there with his disciples and they're talking about food, and he goes, hey, you guys said that the, that the crops can't be harvested for another four months. He goes, look at this field. Look at this. I'm already harvesting people. And he said, open your eyes. Today, this is something that we need to put in our hearts. You know what we tend to do? Not you guys. I'm talking about us as humans. We see how bad the world is and we go, man, I'm going to get on social media and I'm going to complain. That will fix it. And you know what it does? It doesn't fix a darn thing. Do you know what we need to do as Christians? We need to open up our eyes. As evil as it looks out there, that means that there is even more need for the light. And do you know what it says? When Jesus was teaching the Sermon on the Mount, he says, we are the light. So if the world seems to suck more and more and more, do you know what the solution is? It needs the light. Do you know what that means? You. That means you. And to go out there and just to contribute to the darkness does no good. Just to get on Facebook and complain about how bad everything is does no good. Do you know what does do good? To open up your eyes and see that God wants to save souls and that we are the catalyst. We are the ones that connect a lost soul and Jesus Christ together. We're not the one that saves them, but we are the ones that introduce them to the ones that can save their souls. That is our job. And so we will not always see the fruit of that. And that's not the point. We cannot save anyone. We are called to do two things, to plant seed and to water it. Paul writes this, one plants, one waters, but it's God that makes it grow. So we're just called to throw out seed and we are called to water that seed. And we may, we may never see the fruit of that labor. On the flip side of that, we see a lot of fruit that we didn't labor for. There have probably been thousands of people that have been baptized at this church over the years that it wasn't us that, that was the one that planted and watered. It was a youth pastor in another state 20 years ago. It was a mom that got on her face for a decade and prayed for their lost child or for a grandmother that did that or a father or someone else. But we get to see the fruit of that labor. The point is this, we are not in competition. It's not about us getting the glory, it's about God getting the glory. But so often, listen to me, so often we are so busy nitpicking other brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's foolish. We are talking about eternity. Eternity. I've seen people, and no one from this church, not any, anyone from this state, but I saw someone on Facebook the other day. I don't know why I was on Facebook. I was on Facebook the other day, and someone was just ripping on this revival that's happening in Asbury. And I'm like, okay, so the best use of your time, Christian brother, is for you to go and knock on a bunch of college kids who are so audacious that they want to pray and fast for a couple of weeks straight. My God. If the best we can do is knock on Christian kids who want to pray and fast continuously 24-7 for a couple of weeks when they could be out having their sex with their girlfriends and boyfriends and getting drunk in a bar somewhere, if that's the best thing we can do as Christians with our time, God help us. God help us. That is jealousy, that is division, and that is not of God. Eternity is far too serious for us to be nitpicking other believers when we could be going out sharing the light in the darkness. It's crazy. Someone back here, you think that's crazy, right? Okay, good, there's someone back there in the back corner. They think it's crazy too, all right. 
Now many Samaritans from the town believed in him because of what the woman said when she testified, he told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them and he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of what he said. And they told the woman, we no longer believe because of what you said, since we have heard for ourselves and know that this really is the savior of the world. So most people in town knew this woman. Again, I'm not trying to be crass, but imagine if, if, imagine if the most promiscuous woman in town had the worst reputation in town, ran in, she was happy, she was excited, something had obviously changed in her. Everyone was intrigued, what happened? What happened, what happened? I met someone that could be the savior. What this leads us to, to, to believe and understand is this. When people see the fruit of God working in us, it will intrigue people and they will start asking questions. If you're a Christian in this room, and I'm gonna tell you something that does not work. If you approach a non-believer with the Bible and say, well, the Bible says this, they don't believe in the Bible. That does no good, that's not gonna help you. If you get to know someone and build a relationship with them and they, listen, and they see joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness, and here's a good one, self-control in your life, they will go, tell me why you have these things. Tell me why you have a rock solid marriage. Tell me why you have such a good relationship with your children. Tell me why regardless of how crazy the world gets that you still have peace and contentment. Tell me how that's possible. And then we say, let me tell you how that's possible. And we share our personal testimony. That's exactly what happened with this woman. And then John writes that many more believed, not just because of her testimony, but because they heard it straight from the mouth of Jesus himself. But they would have never heard it from the mouth of Jesus. They would have never had that interaction with Jesus if that woman kept her testimony to herself. Do you understand where I'm going with this? This means, just like, just like it says in Revelation chapter 12, they overcame evil by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. It is important that you tell people what Jesus has done in your life. That's what opens up the door. And eventually the truth became their own. You know what else we learned from that? You cannot go to heaven just because your parents were Christians. You cannot go to heaven just because your wife is a really good Christian. We have to have a personal relationship with Jesus. A, a relationship with Jesus has to become our own. And it wasn't about God touching someone else. At this point, it was about God touching them personally. And they had their own testimonies to share. Okay. The first thing that I hope we kind of learned today or that we picked up on is this. I don't care what the world tells you. I don't care what our society and culture tells us. When we make a decision, we have to be responsible for the ramifications of that decision. If we make a choice, there are consequences to that choice. So we have to be responsible. We have to be responsible for our actions, and we also have to be responsible for our own relationship with Jesus. When we stand in front of Jesus, this is what we talked about last week, in front of the great white throne of judgment, when we stand in front of that throne, and Jesus goes, why didn't we have a relationship? Because uh, my pastor was mean one time. Because uh, my parents, oh, be, because you know I was so busy. We had travel baseball. Don't you know how busy that is, God? And God's gonna say, man, they're, they're, you're, you're without excuse. 
You're without it. It just wasn't a priority in your life. We're not gonna be able to blame someone else. We're gonna have to own it ourselves, responsible. We must also acknowledge that we need to be saved. You know what else? We must also be remorseful of sin. Well, Corey, 15 years ago, I prayed for God to forgive me of my sin, and I was saved. Well, you've probably done a lot of awful things in the last 15 years. You need to ask for forgiveness of those as well. Are you saying that I've lost my salvation or that it's in jeopardy? I'm gonna spin it back on you. I'm saying if you say you love Jesus more than anything and you have done things that have grieved him or hurt him or rebelled against him, if you say you love him, regardless of your salvation is in question or not, you should feel bad about it and ask for his forgiveness. If I do something against my wife, even though there's no threat of divorce, because I love her, I say, I'm sorry. And if we love Jesus more than anything, shouldn't we feel bad when we do things huh, that contributed to him being nailed on the cross? We also have to believe that Jesus has a better way for us than we have for ourselves. And what else with responsibility? We must acknowledge that it's not worshiping God however we want, it's worshiping God how he wants. And he wants us to worship him in spirit and in truth. He wants both. He wants our emotions, our feelings, our heart. He also wants our intellect and he wants us to be anchored to the truth. That's how we worship God in spirit and in truth. And we are called to go take that out into the world. Well, what better example of how to take the gospel and the knowledge of Jesus Christ out into the world than Jesus? So listen to this. How did Jesus interact with the, with the grossest, most egregious, awful person in society? How did he interact with them? And again, we live in a culture now to where we don't really think anything's egregious or bad, but we have things like racism, right? Even within Christianity, it's okay to, to hate racists. It's okay to hate misogynists. It's okay to hate the, to hate the right-wing nut and the left-wing liberal. There are certain people where you've lied to ourselves and said, they are beyond saving, they are worthless. And that's not biblical. So let's think of the worst of our society, how, whatever the worst of society is in your mind. And this is how Jesus addressed the worst of the worst. Do you know what the first thing that he did was? He was friendly. If you really wanna turn the world on its ear, do something groundbreaking, be nice. Jesus was friendly. He asked questions. Do you know what happens when we ask questions? We gain empathy. We start to experience empathy. What that means is this, you may not agree with what someone's doing, but when you start asking questions, you start to understand why they do the things they do. You may not agree with it, but you start to understand why they do it. I had a friend several years ago that was making a decision in his life that I 100% I adamantly disagreed with. I thought it was bad for him, his marriage, his family, the whole nine yards. And I told him, I don't agree with this. And I said, why are you going this particular direction? And this individual shared with me that they had been molested and sexually abused almost every single day of their life from the time they were a little kid to when they were in their 50s. Now, does that make me change how I feel about their choices? No, but you know what it did? It made me a little empathetic as to why they made the choices they made. We listen, Jesus listened. 
He showed genuine concern. He was honest. He emphasized that we can be forgiven, we can be changed, we can be saved. He also emphasized and explained the scripture, which is impossible for us to do unless we read the scripture. But he did that as well. And then I figured for this, this next point, I should have made a couple of thousand gallons of green tea. We could all sit on the floor and meditate on this next statement for a second. Jesus looked beyond race. He looked beyond gender. He looked beyond political ideology. He looked beyond mistakes to see what? To see a person. So we will be in an election season next year. And this is where Christianity shows its butt. I'm serious. It makes me so angry how Christian, Christians act during election seasons. We no longer see humanity. We see opposition. We see enemies whom Jesus told us to love. We become hateful. We become, we become very argumentative. Jesus sat with a woman who was not the right color. She was not the right gender. She was not the right political ideology. She was a moral failure. And he looked past all of those things to see someone that needed saving. To see a human. I don't care who it is and I don't care how different from you they are. The Bible says it is not God's will that any perish. So every human you lay your eyes on is a human that Jesus Christ went to the cross for. And we need to see them as such. If we are to show the love of God, this is just logic. If we are to show the love of God, if we are going to have people experience the light and knowledge that we have, get this, we have to hang around people that don't know Jesus. Now instantly that scares everyone to death. You mean I have to hang out with people not like me? Yes. You mean my kids might have friends that are non-believers? I hope so. You mean that I might have to be in uncomfortable situations sometimes? Yes. This doesn't mean that we condone what non-believers do. This doesn't even mean that we engage in sinful things for the hopes of sharing the gospel. I don't recommend you go get lunch at a strip joint with your friend at work that's struggling with like sexual sin, right? I don't know if they serve lunch at strip joints. If you do, then I've caught you, you're busted. It doesn't mean, <laughs> it's the best I could do, guys. Jokes are bad, analogies are bad. That doesn't mean we do sinful things or condone sinful actions, but we have got to place ourselves into positions to where we can build relationships with people who don't know Christ. Is that uncomfortable? Well, my Lord, yes, yes. But do you know what the Bible even says about that? Even the pagan non-believers hang out with people that are like them and love people like them. But the true follower of Jesus loves those that are vastly different from them. Vastly different from them. And we do that for the sake of teaching the truth and loving others. So for the last slide, I just want to ask you a couple of questions. Are we honest about our sin? Or do we blame shift or do we divert the conversation? Not only are we honest about our sin, do we actually feel bad about it anymore? Do Christians still feel bad when they do something that the Bible tells us not to do? I hope so. I hope so. 
Do we feel remorse for the evil we participate in? Do we truly believe, and this comes to these two questions connect, do we truly believe that God's way is superior to ours? If we, if we genuinely believe, if we genuinely believe that God's way is better than our ways, then why do we put so much time, money, and energy into the ways of the world? If we truly believe, if we sing songs, all I need is you, is it? Do you honestly believe those words when you sing them? What if all those material things were stripped from you? Would you still be at peace? Would you still have contentment? Would you still have joy in your life? Would you still feel fulfilled? Let me ask you a hard one here. Do you love people, really? Well, Corey, I have a thing in my kitchen I got from Hobby Lobby. It says, love God, love people. <laughs> it's the one scripture in the Bible everyone knows, besides judge not lest you be judged. Love God, love people. But do we genuinely love people? Do we? Do we look beyond the differences of other people to see their humanity? Do we look at people through the lens that God views people? Do we genuinely love people? You know what the Bible says about that? How can you say, a God, how can you say that you love a God that you can't see when you can't even love people around you that you can see? Do you know the Bible says that? Do you know it is impossible for us to say we love God if we do not love humanity? Do you know it's, it's really, really wrong of us? How many, I'm gonna put Christian in air quotes, how quick we are to bash the church all the time. Churches, right? Christians are so quick to bash the church and so many professing Christians say, man, I love Jesus, I just hate the church. That's like me walking up to a man and saying, dude, I love you, I hate your wife. It's the same thing. Jesus, I love you, I hate your bride. We are the bride of Christ. Are we flawed? Yes, because all of humanity is flawed. I'm never going to church again because I got my feelings hurt. Well, you're never gonna get to go to a restaurant again. You're never gonna get to hang out with family members again because people are always going to let you down. Do we love all people? Do we even love the hypocritical Christian? Do we love the right-wing nut, the left-wing liberal? Do we love the entitled people? Do we love the obnoxious? Do we love the billionaire that makes his money off the backs of the working class. Do we love all people? God wants them all saved, all of them. Is that uncomfortable? Yeah, yeah, it's uncomfortable. But the question today is this, on two levels, are we willing to become uncomfortable? Church should never be comfortable. If you ever go to a church and they're like, we're just trying to make you comfortable, you're at the wrong church. It should always be uncomfortable in church. The Bible is always uncomfortable. The truth is always a little uncomfortable. Are we willing to let God shine the light on the dark caverns of our heart, expose the things that need to be forgiven so we can be changed, fulfilled, saved, so we can be sanctified, which means made more into the image of God? Are we willing to become uncomfortable? And then, are we willing instead of just complaining about how bad the world is, are we willing to go out into the darkest corners of the world and to bring that light? Are we willing to have coffee with that person that, that is the complete polar opposite of us? Are we willing to invite those family members over that we struggle with and don't get along with? Are we willing to minister to the ones who have, who have done egregious, awful things? Are we willing to get uncomfortable? You know what, praise God 
that people got uncomfortable to witness to us once upon a time. I hope we never forget that we were once the lost ones. And there was a guy named Phil that came to my work when I was doing drugs, I was having sex outside of marriage, I was stealing things, I was doing terrible things, and a guy reached out and looked past all that, and he saw a soul. And that's why we're standing here today. But there's probably someone in almost all of your lives that has done something similar. We need to be those people, okay? Would you bow your heads with me, please? If you are in this room and, and maybe you are not a believer, maybe you have questions, maybe you're on a journey, up here on my right, your left, is Pastor Muhammad. It's very fitting that he be up here, and I don't want to embarrass him, but he is the first one in his family to have become a believer. Obviously comes from a Muslim background, had to give up a lot for his relationship with God. If you have any questions for Muhammad, he'd love to talk with you. We have men and women on both sides of the stage that if you need prayer for anything. And then the last thing, all the way around this room, wherever you see a lamp on a table, and then all throughout the middle, there are baskets with communion, bread and wine. That represents the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Everyone is welcome to take communion as long as we ask Jesus Christ to forgive us of our sins, okay? Let me pray for you very, very quickly and let you go. Father God, we love you. I pray, Lord, that we can see people with your eyes. I pray, God, first that we can be honest and vulnerable and exposed to you, God, that, that we will ask you with sincerity to, to shine your light on the darkness of our heart. And even though it's uncomfortable and, and, and hard, God, that you would just expose, Lord, and, and, and deal with the things in us. And then, Father, make us uncomfortable and open up opportunities for us to go out into this world and, and to share your love, to share our stories, and eventually, God, share the truth of your word with people. Lord, let us not just be complainers of the evil around us, but people who are proactive in doing something about it. Lord, we love you. We thank you. God, bless the people in this room. This is the best church, God. Wonderful people, Lord. Protect them. Keep them safe until we meet again. We pray all these things in your son's name, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys. Thank you so much. You're welcome to help yourself.